Renovation. I like this series title. Renovation. Gospel stories. These are stories from Jesus and the Gospels of how he works in people's lives. Kind of watching the interaction between Jesus and especially the Apostle Peter. Peter was kind of a tough project for Jesus to take on. Uh, as well as you and me. So that can kind of relate, you know, because Peter's a lot like us. So we're going to be studying these things for the next few months. Love the series, and I invite you to track with us. One of the things you can do every week, if I can just remind you of a couple of things, we always give you an outline to just help you. Uh, you can sit back and just listen if you want, but if you take some notes, often you learn more. On the back side is where you can sign up for this by, we can email you this or else you can have hard copy. These are five short daily devotionals that will help you go deeper into the truth that we talk about Sunday morning. Because we're not just about you listening to us, we want you to encounter God throughout the week on your own as well. So welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale along with Pastor Ryan. We love teaching the word here. So pray. We need that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the chance to know that we have a God who reveals himself. We'll see that later, even in this passage. Father, what am I praying for? You know, I'm praying that you would uh, take your word and use your word in my life and the lives of my friends here. We need it. We need your touch on our lives. We need your wisdom for life. We need your spirit to empower our lives. And um, we look forward to watching you do that. So would you take the next, next 40 minutes or so and focus us and let us listen to your stories from the Gospels and learn about your grace at work in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Every year it happens, especially here in California, and I've got to admit, even though it's tragic... I can't turn it off when the news starts. Um, it's one of those things where you um, you just kind of got to watch it. What I'm talking about are those days during the rainy season. We haven't had much of that lately. But if you can imagine with me the last time you turned on the news and somebody built this gorgeous home up on the cliffs overlooking La Jolla or Malibu or somewhere. seems like most of the people that do this live in Malibu for some reason. But the home is there because they want the view. So off the back of the home, there's usually a big deck, almost even extending out like you just would fall over the cliff if you walked out over it. And it's a gorgeous view, gorgeous home, but it's been raining and raining and the, and the rains come and the winds come and the erosion begins to happen. And the next thing you know, the word is out that there's some trouble up on a cliff and the news crews show up to capture it. And that's what I mean when I say I just kind of got to watch it. Because what they often do, in, you know, they, they capture that moment where all of a sudden, usually it's the deck first that just kind of goes, you know, and begins to, begins to slip away from the house. And then you see the ground begin to erode a little more. And, and then all of a sudden, someone's gorgeous home that they've invested their life in, just slips over the cliff, into the ocean. Boom, it's gone. I grew up in the Midwest, and it happens back there too, but usually it's not as dramatic with the view. Usually it's people want a beautiful home by the river, you know, so they build these homes by the rivers in the Midwest. Have you seen this? And all of a sudden the storms come and the water rises and the water begins to erode that sandy soil, and next thing you know, the whole house just slips into the water and you see this home floating down the river. You know, and it's tragic. But yet Jesus himself, when he talked about life, he told a story that was very, very similar to that. And we're not going to study that story this morning, but it kind of sets us up for the theme of this passage. Jesus put it this way. It was in Matthew chapter 7. It's in Matthew chapter 7 if you want to write the reference down or, or even look it up or just listen. But we're not going to be there long. So just listen to me, okay? Matthew seven twenty four. Write it down. Look it up this week. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon Jesus ever gave that's recorded in Scripture. 
Jesus has been talking about a relationship with the living God and how to have it and how to not have it and, and how to make sure you don't miss it. And he ends that sermon with this story. He says, you know, there's kind of two ways in which you build life. He says once, and he says, let me tell you a story. He says once there was a man who, who built his house and he was very wise and he built his house on a rock and because it was built on bedrock, the storms came and the winds blew and the rains fell, and, but the house stood firm. And then there was another man that wasn't as wise, and Jesus says he built his hand on his house kind of on sandy soil, and, and the rains came, and the winds blew, and the, and the storm came, and, 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 and the house fell. And he ends by saying, and its fall was very great. And then basically he says, build on me. Build on me. And, and as we listen to that story, what Jesus highlights is a very simple truth that applies to construction, but it also applies to renovation of our lives. And that is foundations are foundational. Say that with me. Foundations are foundational. I want that to stick to you today. Foundations matter. Foundations are crucial. Foundations are very, very expensive and important. If you've ever been a, a builder or built a home or built a project, you know how much money and time goes into stuff that you will never see. Right? Mr. Architect over here? Yeah. Yeah, you know how much money and time goes into stuff you'll never see. You know, you know they dig down and how deep do they dig? They're hoping to hit bedrock. If they don't hit bedrock, they've got to hit enough compaction and, you know, they've got to come in and compact it and compact it and compact it until finally they can hopefully lay a foundation under that building that will be strong enough to support the beauty that's built on top of it. And Jesus says that life is like that. If you want to build the life that Jesus really wants you to build, foundations are foundational. And today we're going to look at a story that is a foundation story. And it's going to lay a, a foundation of what I call in the title of the message, Truth That You Can Build On. So listen to the Word of God. Pick it up. Take your Bible. Open with me if you have one. If not, always get in the habit of picking one up. Or if you have your iPad, at least quit checking email and go to the Word of God. Amen? Uh, none of you are chilling, doing that, though, are you? Okay. I have spies. But anyway, here we go. No. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Listen to the Word of God. The context of the story is very short. We're going to study chapter 16 verses 13 and following. But I want you to get the flavor of what's going on because if you don't see the context and the flavor, you'll never really understand what Jesus is saying to his disciples. To really catch the, catch the vibe of Matthew, you go back to chapter 15, say around verse 30, and listen to this with me. It says, The large crowds came to Jesus, bringing him those who were lame and crippled and blind and mute and many others, and they laid them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame were walking, the blind were seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And the crowd got so big that Jesus did one of his big public miracles. Remember earlier, um, well you don't remember this maybe, but earlier in their life the, the disciples had watched Jesus feed a group of 5,000 men and all of their families uh, by, with just five loaves and, and a few fishes. Remember that? And Jesus did the miracle of multiplying them and it fed the whole crowd. Well, you see, round two of that miracle is in this passage. It's the feeding of the 4,000. But this is 4,000 men, including all of their children and spouses. So now you're talking probably at least 10,000, maybe 15,000 people. And Jesus says this, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I feel compassion for these people because they've remained with me until now. For three days they're watching me do these miracles and they have nothing to eat. None of them brought three days worth of food. And I do not want to send them away hungry to travel home. So let's give them a meal before they leave. So, you know, it's kind of like you, you know, my sermon runs a little long and you say, okay, Dale, I don't want to send these people home without a little pizza. So I order out pizza for everyone. Would that be a great Sunday morning? Yeah, and the sermon ends at 2, a, 2 p.m., okay? Okay, but anyway, I'm not doing that. So I'll let you go feed yourself. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did a miracle. Jesus uh, took, uh, in this case, it was seven loaves. 
So somebody provided with seven, seven loaves and a few fish, and Jesus prayed and did a miracle, and he multiplied it. He fed a crowd of probably ten to 15,000 people, and when they were done, just picking up the scraps of, of bread that were not used or eaten, they filled seven big baskets. These were big baskets. Seven big baskets full of leftover food. And, and it said after that, verse 39, Jesus sent the crowds away. He got into a boat and he came to the region of Magnadon. And so he goes to another region. And this time as he gets there, the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, come up and they're testing Jesus. And they want another miracle. They've heard about these miracles. So having heard about the miracles of Jesus, they say, Jesus, you do a miracle for us and we'll believe in you. Now Jesus knew their heart that they really did not want one more miracle. They'd seen enough miracles. Good grief, you've been doing them all over the place at this point. So he says to them, you are an evil and adulterous generation. I'm not doing another miracle for you. Now, he does other miracles later, but I'm not giving you what you're asking for. But, but, but by the way, I'll give you one more miracle, and that is I'll give you the miracle of Jonah. And he refers back to the Old Testament story of Jonah and Jonah being cast into the water and swallowed by a great fish and, and, and staying three days in the belly of the sea and then coming up alive on the beach. That's called resurrection. And Jesus is forecasting his own resurrection as the ultimate miracle, the ultimate proof for who he is. He says, I will give you that miracle. And of course, they're like, what's he talking about? And then Jesus turns to his own disciples so, and this is how the story begins to shape up. Verse 5, listen to it. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea. So now the disciples come in their own boat and they catch up with Jesus. But they had forgotten to bring the bread. So Jesus, it implies, must have implied, okay, I just did this awesome miracle, seven big baskets. you got to remember, Jesus and his gang, they traveled. They were on a very tight budget. Someone was probably saying, hey, you know, some, just collect the leftover bread, bring a few baskets with you. And, you know, and they get there, and it's time to eat, and they don't have any bread. I mean, Jesus did a miracle to provide seven big baskets of leftovers and the disciples are clueless and they don't even bring the bread. So they, be they begin to discuss among themselves, probably arguing, I thought you were bringing the bread. No, I'm not the bread guy, you're the bread guy. No, you know, so they begin arguing about the bread. They're all uptight about not having any bread. And of course, Jesus is kind of listening to this and knowing that he just kind of, boom, makes bread. He makes this statement to them. Verse 6, 16, 6. Jesus says, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what is leaven? Talk to me. In modern language, what is that? Yeast. So leaven is yeast that you put in the bread dough with the flour so that it swells up and becomes this beautiful loaf of bread, right? And... And, ye, and you know, leaven is often used in Scripture as a symbol of sin. It's a symbol of unbelief. Uh, and, and, and the reason it's used that way is because uh, you know, it, it talks about how a little bit of leaven affects the whole loaf. It doesn't take much to really affect the whole loaf, either for good or for evil. And in this case, he says, avoid or watch out for the leaven of these religious leaders. So Jesus is basically saying, you know, you guys are all uptight about bread. Don't worry about bread. Worry about them. Worry about thinking like them. Worry about letting their thinking begin to invade into your life. But Jesus knows that they still don't get it. They think Jesus is talking about me, what type of bread to get. So it, it goes on like this, verse 7. So they began to discuss among themselves, saying, Guys, you know, uh, he said that to us. Jesus said that to us because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you don't have any bread? That's insignificant. Do you not yet understand and remember the five loaves that I fed 5,000 plus with, the many baskets you picked up? And best, guess what? We just did it a second time. Seven loaves fed 4,000 and all of their friends and family. And how many baskets did you pick up? In other words, hey guys, haven't I proven to you I know how to make bread? Don't you think I can feed us? Why are you so uptight about that? He says, what I'm talking about is not bread. It's the leaven of unbelief. He says, oh, you of little faith, why are you hung up on bread? 
And the disciples, again, are just kind of not getting it. And with that, so now we've set the scene for today's kind of big passage. So what's been going on? Jesus is doing miracle after miracle after miracle, making bread here, making bread there, feeding thousands. His disciples are kind of following him around, but they're still kind of clueless. You know, and which is why I love the disciples. I love this renovation series because it's talking about stories of grace at work. You know, Jesus didn't say, you know, you guys just go back and get the bread. That'd be a good punishment for you. Just sail back across the sea, get that bread that I made already. I'm not making any more bread. You know, I mean, Jesus could have done all kinds of things here. He could have kicked them out of his group. But he didn't do any of that. He has grace. And he's in the process of molding them and shaping them and helping them become his disciples. So Jesus sees this as a, as a teachable opportunity. So Jesus now shifts the topic after the disciples have been missing it, missing it, missing it. And Jesus is going to give them a chance to hit a home run. Here it comes. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That is, himself. Who do people say that I am? So Jesus asked, I call it the setup question, because he's got a bigger question coming. And they answer, and they say, well, Jesus, we know that. We, know, we can answer that. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. But still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, you know, see, now, why do they say this? Well, they say this because the word on the street on Jesus was this. He is incredible. No one teaches like he teaches. No one does miracles like he does miracles. So they knew he was something special. He was at least a holy man of God, and nobody disagreed with that. Even his enemies recognized he was some type of a holy man. So they thought, maybe he's John the Baptist. Now, why would they say John the Baptist? Who knows what John the Baptist was doing at this time when this story happened? Anybody know? Where was John the Baptist? Nope, he wasn't in prison. He started in prison. He was dead. He had, how did he die? He was beheaded. So John the Baptist already had his head chopped off, man. Everybody knew that. So John the Baptist, the idea was, wow, this new teacher like Jesus, he's teaching the same kind of stuff John the Baptist was, and he's doing miracles. Maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead. Because people that come back from the dead, might it takes someone like that to do these kind of miracles. So, you know, and you've got to remember, you said, why would they mix up Jesus and John the Baptist? Well, how many, how many photos of the two do you think were floating around? See, this is before photography, this is before the internet, this is before even Twitter, this is before any of that, all right? This is like way back. So there's no photography, so, you know, you hear a guy and he's, you know, he's got long hair just like John the Baptist did, you know, they both kind of are, are kind of strange and they dress kind of strange and they're teaching a lot of the same stuff. Maybe this is John the Baptist resurrected. Someone else said, maybe this is Elijah. Why would they say Elijah, you know? Okay, if you go to the last prophecy of the Old Testament, was the book of Malachi. The last chapter of the last prophecy, next to the last verse, says this. In the final days of Messiah, when Messiah comes, one will come in the spirit of Elijah. There'll be kind of an Elijah kind of guy who's going to show up. It's Malachi 4.5, if you want to check it out. Malachi 4.5. So those that thought that, wow, if Messiah is coming, maybe this is, maybe this is the great prophet Elijah coming back doing these miracles. Maybe it's John the Baptist resurrected. He's at least like Jeremiah or one of the great prophets. He's at least going to be one of the big boys. Right? You know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, Ezekiel, Jesus. Right. So the common thought of the day was Jesus was a holy man, did miracles. Everybody knew that. And he must be in some way special to God. But they didn't understand that he was really, really the Messiah. So Jesus kind of surfaces the thinking of the culture. And by the way, let me just jump ahead to something I'll touch on later. This sounds a lot like today's culture in America. Because today, if you ask people, who's Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Who was he? Who is he? Most people, I, I find almost nobody that says Jesus was a jerk. Nobody says he was, he was a dangerous, harmful person, bad for humanity. Jesus is perhaps the most highly esteemed person who ever lived. Even those who do not buy into our faith or believe in our faith in Jesus at least acknowledge him as a great prophet of God, a great moral example for humanity. And in a way, that's kind of what the people on the street were saying when Jesus was there. So this sounds a lot like modern-day America. 
So now Jesus flips the question. And this begins to unlock what I call truth you can build on. He says, okay, but who do you say I am? Now he's just got the, he's got his inner circle, his group of 12. But who do you say that I am? Now, as far as we can know from reading the stories, first, nobody speaks. In fact, I know most people are probably doing what? What are the disciples doing? What, what would you do if you weren't sure you had the right answer? In fact, the last several times you opened your mouth, you said something dumb that Jesus had to correct you on. And Jesus says, hi, who do you say I am? My guess is 11 of the disciples just kind of go, uh, didn't I drop something on the ground here? You know, I mean, you just kind of, you look down. You don't want to engage with the teacher when it's time for Q&A in class, right? So, but there's one exception, and that's Peter. Peter decides, by golly, I may have, I may have been an idiot before, but I think I know this. And Peter blurts it out. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, verse 17, now listen to this. Jesus says to him, he says, Simon, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now Barjona, Barjona wasn't like Simon's last name. Um, in the Jewish culture, uh, bar means son, son of. So, you know, Simon's, Simon's dad was in Greek would be like uh, John or Jonas. And so what he's saying is, Simon, son of, you know, son of John, uh, son of Jonas. Um, Simon, son of a fisherman. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And you are blessed because of this revelation. Wow. He gets it right. He gets it right. What he's saying is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word Christ means Messiah, Deliverer, Savior. Okay, it's, it's, it's a big word. It's not just a Jesus nickname. I think in our culture, we get so commonly, what's Jesus Christ, right? Kind of Jesus nicknamed Christ. You know, no, no, no. The word Christ means Messiah. It says, you are our Deliverer. You are our Savior, our Messiah. You're the, you're, you're the Promised One. And you are the Son of the living God. And we know from Scripture that as you study the Bible, the Bible is very clear on two things. One is there's only one God. There's not multiple gods. You got that? You start in the very beginning of the Bible. It says, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? But then a little later, it hints at something where it says, and God said, let us create the universe. You know, let us create. And, and, and then all through Scripture, there is this sense in which there is one true God, but that one true God manifests himself in three different ways as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Those are That's all blended through Scripture. You can't deny it. You can't totally understand it or else you lose your mind maybe, but if you deny it, you lose your soul. So I choose to lose my mind. And I would advise you to. It's the truth about the nature of God. So Jesus, he's saying, you are, you are God. This was a declaration of deity. You are the Son of the living God. And you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, guess what, man? You are blessed. See, Jesus is saying this. This is one great foundational truth for life. And in your outline, if you're taking some notes, what I want to do is transition from the story that we've just covered to the implications for us. And here's the first big implication. This is one great foundational truth you can build your life on. That who Jesus is really matters. That until you figure out who Jesus is, and you're blessed to understand that, you are going to struggle with life, and especially struggle with your relationship with God, but you're going to struggle with all of life, because it's based on understanding God. If I go through life, and I, and I don't know everything, that's for sure, but the most important truth for any human being who's going to live in a world created by God with an eternal soul that will someday stand before God, there is no more important truth to know than truth about God. Everything else is secondary. I mean, I love education. I got a bunch of education. My kids got a bunch of education. They got degrees and college degrees and master's degrees and, you know, and I got an honorary doctorate, you know, which is the best way to get one. But, you know, the reality is, <laughs> you know, the reality is 
Um, yeah, the reality is, you know, I got a THM in theology and got an extra degree and blah, blah, blah. You know, you know but the, uh, education without knowing who God is doesn't get you too far. So he says, you are blessed if you grasp the truth about Jesus. You are blessed to know this. This is the ultimate beginning of blessing in your life. That's what Jesus says. Now, there's no doubt our culture is confused on Jesus. I've already kind of shared that in that the most common thinking of our culture today is Jesus was very cool, very great uh, role model for most of humanity and should be in the top three list of the greatest human beings that ever lived, if not number one. That is common thinking in the culture, even among those of other religions, other faiths, or no faith at all even. Um, not everybody likes Jesus, but let me tell you, I, I, I don't bump into too many enemies of Jesus. And I bump into a lot of people don't like Christianity, a lot of people don't like the church, a lot of people don't like Dale. Well, a few people don't like Dale. Okay, not a lot, but some. And so do you. Jesus is pretty high up. But the most common view in our culture is very much like the common view when Jesus was on the earth. Wow, he is something special. He's somehow connected to God. He knows a lot of the stuff that we don't know, and he can do things that we can't do, but he's just a great moral example for humanity. How would you answer that if that were the view of your friend or your work associate or your friend at school? The best way I've ever found to answer it, I want to give you the two-minute overview. Uh, I didn't come up with it. Uh, a guy a lot smarter than me did named C.S. Lewis, one of the sharpest minds in, in, in the history of Christianity probably. And Lewis came at this study as he moved himself from being a skeptic to a believer in Jesus. One of the things influenced him was this thing called the trilemma. Let me walk you through it, okay? The trilemma kind of goes like this, and you can draw a little diagram if you want to to track this. Jesus begins by saying Jesus claimed incredible things when he was on the earth. Even his enemies agree that he made outlandish claims. What were some of the things Jesus said about himself? Talk to me. I am God. I and my Father are one and the same. He said that in John chapter 10. What else? I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Wow. What else? I am, I'll be raised from the dead. I'll conquer death. In fact, let me take it even further. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Even though he dies, he'll, he'll never really die. I mean, he, he will live forever. So he promises that he has the ability to give eternal life to people that believe in him. There you go. There's another one. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Wow, that's a pretty arrogant big claim, right? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the spring of life. I am the source of life. There's no life outside of me. I am the light of the world. In fact, I created the lights of the world. Now, these are big-time claims. Now, so C.S. Lewis said this. Okay, so knowing that Jesus said that kind of stuff, there's only two things that are true. Either they're true or they're false. You don't have a third option. Now, so why does Lewis call this the trilemma? He said, out of this flow three options. If they're false, you got two options. Jesus knew they were true or he did not know they were true. Got that? Is there another option? No. They're exclusive. So he either knew they were true or he did not know they were true. Now, if Jesus knew that they were true, what's that make him? It makes him a liar. He knew they weren't true, and he said, you know something, it'll be good for humanity to believe this about me. In fact, it'll kind of be kind of cool. I mean, it's going to fool billions of people, but that's all right. It'll make humanity better. They'll treat each other better. So best, you know, a little lie is okay. So Jesus, the greatest liar who ever lived, or if he did not know they were true, he was self-deceived. Maybe his mother sang to him on Mary's lap after the first Easter, I mean the first Christmas, excuse me, after the first Christmas, he heard little messianic fairy tales. I don't know. But, you know, maybe all of this caused Jesus to be self-deluded, in which case Jesus was a lunatic. He was a self-deluded person, deluded, so deluded he thought he was God. He thought he could give eternal life to people. Now, there are people walking around the streets of Encinitas who believe this. Do you know that? People, you know, you'll meet people and say, yes, I'm God. Welcome. I've been waiting to meet you. Okay, I've met some people that think they're God, but I usually don't see them as great moral examples. 
So either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or if it was true, it means he was the Lord of the universe and he was God, the Son of God, come in human flesh to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. He was who he said he was. So C.S. Lewis writes this as he lays out this argument. I quote from Lewis. He says, I am trying here in this diagram to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say about Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell, the greatest liar who ever lived. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. So I think, you, I think every Christian needs to memorize this little argument and be able to sketch that out on a napkin to explain why would you believe Jesus was more than a great moral example? Because you can't be a great moral example if you're a lunatic or a liar. But you can be if you're really who he said he was. But let me return now to what Jesus now declares to Peter. When Peter proclaims this foundational truth, remember, this truth is the foundation for your life. That's my point of the morning, is who Jesus was. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There are five consequences that kind of flow out of this. And, there, and I love the Bible because, see, these are not Dale's ideas. This is right in the Scriptures. There are five things. I hope you see those in the next two verses. That if you know and believe that Jesus was who he said he was, five things are true of you. Number one, this truth about Jesus is the greatest blessing you'll ever get. No greater blessing than understanding the truth about God. I've already taught you that. Number two, the truth about God is the greatest revelation that you could ever receive. But notice that Jesus says this is a revelation, not a discovery by Peter. Big difference there. Notice in the text. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of a regular fisherman, son of John, because flesh and blood, mere people, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it. Underline the word revealed. See, there's a big difference because most of the world thinks that when it's time to figure out God, you need imagination, you need intellect, you need reason, and there's nothing wrong with having an active imaginative uh, brain in which you turn your brain on to think. Nothing wrong with having the ability to think, right? But yet what Jesus points out is, hey, guess what? Peter, this doesn't get discovered by mere thinking because it's truth about God. So therefore, here's my point. Truth about God, any truth about God has to come from revelation, not inspiration, speculation, imagination, or reason. Why is that? Real simple. You're not God. That's a discovery for some of you today. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, you know, you're pretty cool, but you're not God. You should do that right now. Some husbands need to hear that. Yeah. See, you're not God, I'm not God. And here's the other deal. You haven't been to heaven and come back to tell people about it. So things like truth about God, what God thinks, what God believes, um, how can you have a relationship with God, how can you be forgiven of your sins, whether you go to heaven or not, guess what? People have opinions. But Christianity is not built on opinions. It's built on revelation. To illustrate this, I, um, I had an encounter with a man years ago that was older than me that I kind of got into a heavy discussion about what I believed and what he believed and my beliefs as a Christian, and he didn't agree with me. So he was explaining what he believed. And finally, after we went back and forth, it was a very friendly, cordial-type conversation. He finally said this to me. He says, Dale... He says, you know, I think the cool thing today is, I think what we've learned is, we don't have to agree, 
because you know you've got your opinions, I've got my opinions, and we can just kind of agree to respect each other, and that's that, because we're not going to agree. Have you ever anybody said that to you? What do you say back to that? Here's what I said. I said, you know, I think his name was Fred. I said, Fred, I um, I definitely want to respect you. I said, but I don't want to, I don't want to end our conversation with you misunderstanding something. I'm not arguing that my opinions about God are better than your opinions about God. Because I don't trust my opinions about God. In fact, I don't even think I know anything about God. At least not Dale by himself. Um, I said, Fred, you're telling me that the basis for what you believe about God is based on your personal experience and study and intellect. Is that true? And he says, well, yeah, I guess that's the way it is. I mean, that's all we have. I said, that's where you misunderstood me. I said, because it's not your opinion about God versus my opinion about God. You believe that there is no truth about God and you have to try to discover it on your own. I believe that God so loved the world that he wants to be known, so he spoke. See, I think God has revealed himself to us. And he did it in two big ways. He's done it kind of in a big sense in creation, but that's not specific enough. That just tells me he's there and he's big, okay? I think what God also did was he revealed himself in revealing himself in the revelation, which we call scripture. So there's the written word of God, and then the person of Jesus is called the living word of God. So the living word of God, Jesus, and the written word of God in the scriptures tell me the details about God. So what I'm saying to you, Fred, is that this is not your opinion against my opinion. This is your opinion against what I believe is God's revealing of himself. See, if you're going to stand for Jesus Christ and be a follower of his, you've got to explain that to people. Because people think this is your views of God versus their views of God. And I don't know about you, but you don't look any smarter than them. Not even to me. Pardon that. And I don't look any smarter than them. I'm not as smart as some of them. But i got one big thing going for me. i got a God who reveals himself. And that was happening here when Jesus said to Peter, Hey, Peter, guess what, man? You didn't figure this out and nobody could tell you this because this type of truth comes only as the Father reveals it. And you just got a revelation from God. Wow. See, men and women, the greatest truth about God, if you're going to build your life, if you're going to let God renovate your life with Jesus Christ, it begins by understanding the, re- the revelation of God is what you build on. It is the truth about Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures and who He was and what He did. That's like pouring the concrete on the bedrock. In fact, that is the bedrock on which you put your concrete to build your life. Number three. Here we go. Number three. By the way, if you want more details on that, I did a four-week sermon series in Easter of 2012 called Irrefutable. If you go to our website, you can download all four messages, uh, listen to them, and they talk about the uniqueness of the Bible, the uniqueness of Jesus, the, the uniqueness of why we believe our faith is built on solid rock. So go there if you want more information. Number three, here we go, number three. The truth and faith in Jesus is not only a blessing and a revelation, it is transformational. That's our third word of the morning. It's a blessing, it's a revelation from God, and it's transformational that affects the total life renovation. It's funny the way Jesus reveals this. He says, uh, Simon Barjona, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven did. But I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We'll come to the second half in a minute. He says, you are now Peter. You see, that wasn't his name. Simon was his name. Now Jesus, when he first met Simon, he said, Simon, you're going to be Peter. He says, you will be Peter, future tense. It's John 1, 42. You will be Peter. And now, all of a sudden, Peter, Simon, excuse me, discovers this truth and proclaims it as his faith. And he says, guess what, man? Now you're Peter. You just turned into Peter. I love it. See, because Jesus is in the business of transforming all of us from who we were before Christ to who he dreams of us to be with Christ. 
And it's captured in that change of names. When you changed a person's name in, in the Jewish culture or the Greek culture or the Roman culture, in any of them, when you changed their name, it was because you are a new person. It's a new identity. Wow. So he changes officially. He says, yeah, you're not Simon, man. Now you have become Peter. Now, and he says, upon this rock I'll build my church. Because Peter, or Petros, means rock or boulder. So picture the rocks in your garden, maybe even this big. Big rocks, little rocks in the garden and your home. Those are what Petros means. But then he says, upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And that introduces truth number four. We're moving. Truth four. And that is, the truth about Jesus is the foundation for the church. Now, down through history, people have been confused by this because it says, Peter, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, has led many people to think Peter was like the first pope or first head over all the church. Um, I'm sorry, but not true. And here's why. What Jesus says is, you are Peter, which means a rock or a boulder, upon this Petra rock, I will build my church. It's a different word. And Petra means bedrock. If you want to picture a Petra is when you dig down so deep that you hit solid rock. That's a Petra. Peter is just a a little boulder, okay? That's bedrock. Uh, Half dome in Yosemite, which is that? Petra or Petras? Petra. So half dome is a piece of bedrock, okay? But the little rocks that maybe fall off of it and tumble down and you pick up and you put them in your garden, that is just a normal rock or a boulder. That's like Peter. So what Jesus is saying is this. I'm going to build my church not on you, Peter. I'm going to build my church on this declaration of Jesus and who he is. So this great truth that you've just uncovered, this is the bedrock on which I'm going to build my church. What's he going to build the church out of? Here it is. The church is built out of a bunch of Petroses, but we all must be founded on the one great Petra. Think about it. So the church is built on Jesus. It's not built on you. It's not built on me. It's built on Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that kind of truth, the gospel of Christ, who he was, what he did. That's, that's the big truth of the morning. Now guess what? At the same time, God wants to make you into a rock. Just like he wanted Peter to be a rock. He wants you to have a solid faith. He wants you to be strong in Christ. He wants you to be able to make a difference in your world. He wants you to be a piece of the puzzle of building the church. Because the church is built out of a whole bunch of rocks. And each of us have the chance to be a a rock, be a part of the building of the church. But it's got to be founded, not on us. It's founded on Jesus. So when you meet people that are really irritated with the church and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with church. Say, you know something, I understand that. The church has got its own bunch of problems and flaws. But every organization has that. You know, you know. I know doctors that have problems, but do you not go to a doctor? What I like to tell people is, you know, the thing that messes up churches, it's really pretty simple. It's people. It's you. It's me. I'm the problem. But see, what people who are honest need to realize is, you know, if you find a perfect church, please don't join it because you will ruin it. And that's true, for, that's true of me. As soon as I join the perfect church, then it's no longer perfect because now it's got Dale. Or you. Or the person you're talking to. See, churches are not museums to display the perfect, finished work of Christ. They're hospitals to gather the people that want to be healed and fixed and, and to become more like Jesus. But you never get there until you get to heaven. So realize that Jesus is not teaching that he's going to build his church on Peter. He's going to build his church on the bedrock of Christ. Last but not least, he then says a really confusing thing in verse 19. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Peter. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven Whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Then he warned his disciples that, at least for now, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. He says, when I want everyone to know what you know, I'll let it out. Strange passage. What's it mean? Well, there's a lot of different interpretations of this passage, but here's what I believe it means. I do think Jesus was saying, Peter, I'm going to use you in a very unique way to unlock the gospel to the world, to let it loose. And, to, and, and when you study the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, in the first big proclamation of the gospel to the Jews was done by who? Peter. If you go to Acts chapter 8, where there's the unlocking of the gospel to the Samaritans, who delivers the message? Peter. If you go to Acts chapter 10 and the dialogue about the untaking of the gospel to the unveiling of the gospel to the Gentile world, who does it? Peter. If you go to Acts chapter 15 and the big debate over what it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God and, 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 and if you're a Gentile like most of us, the answer again was Peter. Peter was used uniquely to like launch, to unlock the mystery of the gospel to the world. And I think that's what that's in reference to. But I have to admit, this is one of those passages that has caused me to scratch my head. And you can tell, well, you can tell I've done a lot of head scratching over the years. Okay. Okay. Don't laugh that loud. It's okay. God loves me just the way I am. So what's the implication of this? Knowing Jesus transforms my life because it infuses it with eternal significance. We started today talking about building. So when I come through high school, I have the second highest GPA in my class and I get voted most likely to succeed. Um, now I don't share that with any sense of pride because all of us who are old enough to be out of high school a few years know how much that mattered. But I was doing pretty well, that's my point. My oldest brother had gone away, gone away and become a civil engineer and had a big job. And my brother number two had gone, he was in medical school at the time and became a surgeon. And, and my dad knew that with our God-given abilities, maybe even Dale can do something. So I read an article about an architectural engineer that was young and had started an architectural firm and he was good at creative buildings of buildings. And ever since I was a little kid, I built stuff. So I thought, you know something, I'm going to do what he did. Because I read this article in Time Magazine, how he, he got paid $35 million to design this big mega complex down in Florida somewhere. And I thought, wow, I can do that. I could design one complex, collect $35 million and retire. So this was my dream. I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to make big bucks. I, I, that was my dream, you know, and I thought, I can do this. Forget my brother, he's going to be a surgeon. I mean, he's going to have to mess with sick people all the time. I got a better idea. So I was going to be an architect, and um, what changed that? What changed that, and by the way, if you're an architect, we need, we need that. We need good ones who love Jesus. But for me, what changed that was I could spend my life building buildings. I could spend my life helping unlock the greatest truth that people need to know and changing lives forever. And so can you. Because the scriptures teach elsewhere that really each of us hold the keys to the kingdom. Because you have the mystery of God revealed to you if you know Jesus. And you have friends who unless... Unless somebody puts the key in and turns that lock, they are imprisoned by their sin and their separation from God. And only Jesus Christ can unlock them, can unlock their soul and give them eternal life. Only Jesus can do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. But you know what we do have? You have the key because you know the story. So you hold the key to eternal life for people. Love your friends enough to at least give them the key. And whether they're willing, by the grace of God, to put it in the lock and turn it, 
You can't control that. That's between them and God. Only them and God do that. That's the mystery of the sovereign work of God in their life. But you know something? You have the key. For heaven's sakes, let's move toward being a church that whether we're in Africa or whether we're in Encinitas, we are loving our people toward Jesus. We are giving them the keys to the kingdom of God. That's my dream. I don't want to build any buildings. Much more fun. Much more fun to unlock people who need Jesus. Pray with me. So, Father, as we uh, turn back to a time of worshiping you, uh, we just want to pause for a second and say, wow, we, I know I am overwhelmed by this truth that you have entrusted to us the revelation of Jesus. And to know the truth about Jesus and his gospel and his work. So, Father, I pray that if we have a friend here today that maybe coming in the door, they weren't sure what they believed about Jesus. I would invite them to pray with me right now and say, Jesus, I'm in. I, I believe this. This makes sense. I put my trust in you as my Savior, as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who lives today as my resurrected Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And Father, may each of us this morning, if, uh, if we've grown um, a little calloused because we've known this for so many years, we forgot how important it is. I pray that today would kind of reawaken in our soul a desire to offer the keys, to offer the key, the Jesus key, to people around us that are locked in darkness and death. How cool it is that you want to use each of us to be a a little Petros in your church. As we build your church upon the Petra, the bedrock called Jesus. We ask you to do that. So Father, even as we give now, I pray that our giving would reflect that getting the word out about Jesus is the number one priority in our budget. Nothing more, nothing better to do with your money. Help us to be a generous people. In Christ's name, amen.